Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. We are here with our second part of our two-part series with David Lieben. David is one of our favorite guests, and we wanted to break this one up into two parts for our crazy busy teachers. We are telling them as superheroes in this very busy year. (laughs) Absolutely. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to part one, we definitely suggest listening to that one first. Um, In both episodes, David's talking to us about how to help older students with unfinished learning and foundational reading skills, which is right up my alley. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But at the end of last week's episode, he ended with a short little discussion about decodable texts. And we've actually included that part again this week, just so you had some context before David jumps into talking about whether or not to make, whether or not it makes sense to use decodables with older students. Right. So if you feel like you've heard it before, you might want to skip the first seven minutes and that will take you to the new content for this episode, part two. Enjoy. Well, first, I just want to say I've already downloaded the How We Read uh, Graphic Guide to Literacy and it's amazing. (laughs) I'm just I'm just scrolling through, but I can't wait to actually read it. Um, I think my next question, I kind of want to do two questions, but maybe I'll see if I can make it one question, um, is there's a lot of debate around decodables and using decodables. And I'm wondering like how, if those kind of readers fit in at all with older readers. Um, and then if you could also talk a little bit more about fluency, like specifically what, if, if, Students just need more work on fluency, because I know there's some really quick, easy ways to work on that, too. Maybe those two questions go together. Maybe they don't at all. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm probably not going to be able to keep both questions in my working memory. Um, <laughs> so I'm going I'm to start with yeah, I'm going to start with decodables. Um, you know, I don't feel bad about that because I always remember in, in the last part of Obama's second term, he was at a, you know talking to the report, and it was at, it was a you know a press conference or something. He said, "Well, you know, you guys asked me these three part questions when I was younger. I could <laughs> I could remember all of them. I, mean, I can't do that anymore. So you're going to have to repeat at, le- at at least question three. So I don't feel that bad. And he's you know he's like thirty years younger than I am. Um, okay, let's start with this. There's there's no research that you that you need to that you have to have only decodables at any age. That's number one. Number two, there's a really good paper. And and again, you can get this and and put it on your site, you know, just ping me that it's actually a review of some research. There's two papers that I'm going to say. One is written by Marilyn Adams. So it's really well written and really clear to you users who don't know the name because she's kind of hasn't been around much lately. Marilyn Adams is one of the only one of the two people who wrote the foundational skills standards um, and also a book called Beginning to Read in the 1990s, which is more more cited than any book in, in, in the history of foundational reading. Mm. So what, what the point that she makes is that the, co- the, the role that decodables play is to show kids and convince kids that when they come to a word that they don't recognize automatically to decode 
code that word moving from left to right. And that's the first thing they need to do to get them into not just first the inclination to decode the word when they first come to it. That's very important. The role of decodables is to get them to have the inclination before anything else to decode that word, spelling, sound patterns, linguistically, phonetically, etc. And secondly, as a result of the inclination for that to be a habit. Now, of course, the three-part queuing system blew this whole thing out of the water <laughs> because it put everything on equal footing. I mean, that's giving it the benefit of the doubt. I really think that they said a lot of a lot of instruction said use the picture, use the context. But clearly they said for, for decades, um, they're all equally important. And that did, as you both know, and as I think a lot of your listeners know, that's that did an enormous amount of damage. So the role of decodabilities is to give kids the inclination and the inclination over a period of time becomes the habit. That's number one. Number two, the sooner the better. Decodables have a bigger bang for the buck in kindergarten and first grade by far than they do in second grade and a bigger bang for the buck in the beginning of first grade than they do in even the middle or the end. So that's number two. Number three, there's a re- the only synthesis of reviews on decodability is at least 10 years old. I, I, I can send you it. It's by... It's by two people called Cheatham and Allures. I'm not sure if I'll pronounce them Cheater the right name. Cheatham and Allures, <laughs> it, kind of, it kind of sounds like Allure means, I think, going away or something in French. So it sounds, Cheatham and Allures sounds like either a corporate law firm or a group of bank robbers. <laughs> but at any rate. Um, I don't even want to know what I was thinking when you said it. I was, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I think it was like a, a new Tiger King or something. <laughs> 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 But it's it's really it's really good work. Um, and what 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 that work shows is it's not decodables, it's decodability. The kindergarten, first grade, this they need me a, a good number of words that have phonics patterns that students have been taught or are in the process of learning so that they can be, they can develop the inclination to decode and the habit of decoding first. However, if we only, the only way that every word could be a decodable is if the only text that students read in kindergarten or first grade are decodables. That's not a great idea. And, and research- Why not? <laughs> yeah, tell us <laughs> For two reasons. First of all, you know, other, other than other than geodes, as you guys know well, and, and geodes is the decodables written for wit and wisdom, which are works of art and poetry, which should be admired for future generations. Um, but other than those two, decodables, a lot of them are not great in terms of um, garnering interest, etc. Yeah. But that's not even the biggest problem. The other point is worked by a woman named Donna Scanlon, um, S-C-A-N-L-O-N, and that's something else I can send you. It doesn't get the attention it deserves. And her work has actually showed that when kids have a chance, when text provides students an opportunity to decode first and foremost always, but also to check their work in context. If they're not sure of the word, um, then 
it really is a good idea to use the context and then use learn how to use the context as a secondary or backup. I can't say that enough. And then go back to the word and look at it again. So in other words, the ideal way to do this is first try to decode. If it doesn't work, use the context. Then go back to the word and say, okay, I now know this word means bridge. I figured it out. What's making, what's making these sounds? I know B-R, that, and so that's bruh. I-D-G-E must be itch, and it's bridge. So you fail to decode, you go to the context, you determine the word from the context, you go back to the word, and you do essentially what Linnea Erie calls orthographic mapping. Move from left to right. I know what this word is now. And I know, let's see, how did it make these sounds? That's the way to do it. And I wanted to be so sure that I was right about this, that in a personal convert, in a personal series of emails with Marilyn Adams, she said, that is exactly what you do. So you need books that provide multiple opportunities like that. I'm going to stop for questions and comments before we go on to older students, because as with everything else, it's 10 times as tricky when we move into the older grades. But first, questions or comments about that. I'm wondering about why, like, what, how many, like, what is the research behind it that, that led that, led, led to that conclusion? Is there, are there bodies of research that or is it just yes, like well, the first conclusion about inclination and habit or the second conclusion about use of context as a secondary source can be actually powerful. Yeah, that's, Donna's, that's Donna Scanlon's papers. And it's actually a body. Okay. It's actually a body of work. There's like four or five, including one with older students. And I, I can send them to you. Of course, okay. anytime I say I can send something to someone, that means I have to find the freaking thing, and I'm not good at that. Um, we can look at we can look it up too. I just didn't know if it was like one report or multiple, and I think that that's oh important. no, Scanlon's and to is model scan- good habits of asking that. Yeah, no, that's a, that's that's a good question. And Scanlon's work is a whole body. It's, it's been I think it's you know it's certainly her major work over her life over her career. Um, awesome. Okay, I I wrote her name down, so we can look it up too, David. Okay, good because like. One of my one of my favorite people in my work in education, Silas Kolkani, um, once said that David, your mind is like a book without a table of contents. Um, <laughs> That's a really good analogy. I like it. <laughs> um, I love. So that. Should we go on to older students? Yeah, yeah, let's, let's do, do it. it. Okay, so you, you need you need older students the same thing. They need to develop the inclination and the habit, probably even more. Because they've been taught with a three queuing system for who knows how many years. Right. And so you got the decodables. And, even, you know, even G, even if they have geodes, um, it's not designed, it's not part of the fifth grade program in written wisdom. And there's really very little decodables. Um, there is a decodable series that Meredith found in her work with um, adult education. I, I only looked at it briefly. It's certainly better than it's designed for adults. So that's somewhat helpful. But we want kids to read A, engaging text, B, tier one text as much as possible. So how do we do that and give them this kind of inclination and habit to get into the habit rather of decoding first? 
Well, an idea I came up with recently, and I don't know if I'd run it by anybody except Meredith, um, <laughs> is... Well, you're about to run it by a few thousand people, so go ahead. Okay, good. <laughs> um, and, I, and I'll give credit for the idea came indirectly from the Bookworms program. Oh, and I'm forgetting the name of the author of Bookworms. Melissa, well, you guys can, I see her already you can like look Googling. it up. Um, <laughs> and you just do sentences. In other words, you take sentences that have the words you want to work with. So if you're working with the E-I-G-H word and maybe some other words, you compose five or six sentences that have those words, or you do it in the course of a week, um, and you use those sentences for students to practice. And then you don't have to worry about the codables because in all likelihood, they're not possible. But you have instead a series of sentences that are very dense with words that students are either learning the phonics pattern now or have learned. Now, you could make those sentences kind of funny and that would be great. But if they're not terribly interesting, you're only talking about five, six, 10 sentences. You're not talking about a work of literature or something like that. Um, I believe, I'm not 100% sure of this. I know that there are computerized random sentence generators. I don't know if those sentence generators, that, that comes from the field of computational linguistics, which I don't, rep, you know, I don't want to put myself off as an authority in computational <laughs> linguistics or neuro-linguistics, another, another thing that I've been reading lately. But um, there's a good chance that, that the program can be written where you feed in the phonics patterns that you want, and the computer pumps out um, five or six or X number of sentences were heavily invested with those phonics patterns. But sentence patterns is another way to get away with, to, to get away with that problem. And it kind of fits right in with chapter seven, where you're pulling everything you can out of tier one instruction. So that was a very, that, that's, that's a really important point. Sure. Okay, so I'm just going to summarize that. So what you could do, if I'm a teacher listening to this podcast and I'm thinking, okay, I have um, a curriculum that is considered uh, high quality and I want to have some decodable experiences for some of my struggling readers. I know I'm already doing some of the things that David mentioned. I have some fluency work. I'm um, doing some foundational skills work with my students in the form of these really fun games that he just talked about. I also could pull some sentences when I notice that some of the words are uh, tricky for my students and I can pull those sentences and I can either pull a series of sentences from the text or I can use words that I'm finding my students having a tricky time with and I can create my own sentences like five or six sentences and then that can be the quote decodable. It doesn't need to look like you know, a, a, a typical decodable because for older students, that's potentially not appropriate or even feasible or even maybe even necessary. Is that right, David? That's absolutely right. And I just got a really good idea. Um, <laughs> Cause you know, the funnier you can make the funnier and more wacky, you can make those sentences, you know, without, 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 without reverting to anything that involves a criminal act or sex is to make them as zany as possible. Um, <laughs> And ask the whole class, have contests. Who can? Here's, here's our words this week, gang. We got E I G H, we got L Y, we got Y at the end of a sentence, et cetera, et cetera. Let's see who can come up 
with the most really weird, wacky, wild sentences, whether they make sense or not, because the sentence doesn't have to make sense. It only has to be grammatically correct. Um, And make it into a game, make it into a contest and have the kids do the work. You can't beat like that. that. Can you use, David, could we use the words that they're already using for the foundation, some of the foundational skills practice? Yeah, that's what I mean. That you want, yeah. you want oh, okay. it to be, you want it to be what, let's say you pulled out of the tier one text, as I said, the E-I-G-H words and two or three other words. Then you use those, you, you hand those out to the kids and you give them a, 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 a be, the better way to do it is next week, you might want to work. You think you're going to work on such and such on a, on a different phonetics phonetics pattern. Um, you're going to work on AI, or you're going to work on R controlled vowels with A R E R and O R. And okay. and you you give the kids that information, and they have a whole week in their spare time or in between moments to see how many or for homework, how many sentences can they come up with that have which have words as many words as possible with these phonics patterns. Oh, and by the way, you can throw in last week's phonics patterns too and have the kids generate these sentences. That would actually be better than a random sentence generator. Yeah. David, let me ask you something. So I, you know, I always put things in terms of the, the high quality schema that I know, which is wit and wisdom. So I'm going to just kind of like dive in very quickly and, and zoom in to put into context what you've just said, but I want you to affirm that it's, it's accurate. So in Wit and Wisdom, we have our core text. And if I'm a Wit and Wisdom teacher, I can, you know, teach my core instruction, but I also um, know that fluency is included with Wit and Wisdom. So there's small chunks of fluency, like small chunks of the text that are pulled out for fluency practice. There are fluency passages for students, you know, K through eight. Um, and then what I may want to also do is if I see that I have like older students who are struggling, so, you know, grades, maybe, what would you say? Four, four and up, they're struggling. I might play these games. You know, I'm just thinking of where foundational skill programs may not provide coverage. So I guess if you're only foundational K through two, then I do this three and up. If you're, uh, you know, if you have a foundational skills program that also addresses third grade, then I do it four and up. But I also think these games kind of can't hurt. Right. Like in addition to if they if teachers would like to do this, um, that then I'm, I'm creating these games based on the text. So it's super integrated into what I'm doing. It's only taking, as we just talked about, like 10 minutes. And within that, we're doing a game or an activity that supports the um, foundational skills like repetition and practice. But then I'm also going to have them read these crazy sentences that will help their fluency for these words in context. So if I'm the teacher, I already have high quality materials. I really only have to do the part that is like the creative part. Like I can feel confident that my tier one text is addressing all the things that you said. I have a fluency component to that program. And then I'm doing the part that like really focuses in and like notices what my students need. Is that right? Like, is that accurate? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And what's behind, what's behind your understanding is there are some kids that if you have a good fluency program, and I know what wisdom does because I helped them with it. Um, if you have a good fluency program, that's all some kids need, but there are some kids who need word work and are not going to get where you want them to get without, without fluency. Um, and what you described is exactly what the trick becomes. Can you pull these kids out who've, who've been suffering since kindergarten um, and separate them from everybody? 
Um, I, I, I like to avoid that completely. Um, and, and before we leave, let me talk about the course that I'm working on with Student Achievement yes. Partners called the, hum, the Humanities Accelerator course. Um, if, you have to, if, if, if you have to pull them out, if that's the only way to do it, that's better than nothing. But if you've used a guide to reading, if you've talked about it, those kids understand that their problems do not reflect the lack of intelligence, then pulling them out is way better. Um, mm-hmm. it's, then it becomes a whole different ballgame. But without that, pulling them out is, is, is always going to be difficult. I would rather try to keep everybody together. And if it's fun and snappy, you could do and five to 10 minutes or whatever, you can, you can do that. But I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to underestimate the difficulty of doing that, both, of all of that, both emotionally and logistically and, and every teaching is freaking hard. What mm-hmm. just, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I mean, I was a principal for 10 years. Um, it was more, it, it, there was, there was some intense moments <laughs> more than as a teacher, <laughs> but it was not, it was not harder than being a teacher. <laughs> I appreciate you saying hard. that. I appreciate you saying that. You, you, you can't escape when you're a teacher. You're on all the time, and 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 if you and if something went wrong, the residue is going to be there the next day. Principals can still hide for at least part of the day. Um, even good ones. <laughs> all right, we're going to take you in one last direction, um, and this is I mostly about older students, but it can apply to to younger students as well. And it's um, kind of about it's independent reading. So I learned in my reading program, right? Like if, if you get a student to just find that right book that they love, then they're going to be motivated, right? Then they're going to love reading. And then that's going to change the course of, of the way they go. And I think some people still have questions about that. Um, Like, I think some people probably still are in that same boat of like, I just got to motivate them and find, find books that, that are interesting for them. Um, and then other people are hearing things like once someone wrote to us and said, we heard on your podcast, Nell Duke said that research out there just doesn't support independent reading. Um, and then I know that you have a, a you know, a, a, a stance of some sort on this idea of a volume of reading. And so I just wanted to throw all of that out there and get your thoughts on how could, how could that help older students as well? Okay. Um, Nell is right. And, and, um, Tim has said the same thing and others, I'm sure. Um, if a student is in the fifth grade and they're reading at a second grade level, then independent reading, no matter how much they love the book is not going to bring that fluency to a fifth grade level. Um, they need to do the kind of fluency work that, that you all know that, that wit and wisdom does and that, you know, from your own work. And so, and many of you readers do with, you know, choral reading and buddy. (laughs) Yes. Yes. With grade level text. Um, so that, that's, that's a definite. So then what's the role of independent, but then you can, then you end up in a position of saying, there's no research showing that independent reading will improve weaker readers. Well, the problem is that independent reading of a text that students, meaning text that students are reading independently on their own, um, that they can, that they can read on some level, um, they may make some mistakes here and there, but they, they can read it well enough to get a sense of the text and what's going on. That will improve their vocabulary and their knowledge over a period of time. That is for sure. And connected to that, 
if it's a series of texts on a topic, if the reading they're doing is on a topic similar to Wit and Wisdom and the other knowledge-based programs, that will even improve their vocabulary and knowledge more. And Cervetti and Wright's study, where they took two different, two sets of texts, they had five or six texts, one set of text was all about birds. It was con coher conceptually coherent. There was an introductory text, then a text on flying, then a text on reproduction, then a text on habitat, etc. And then there was another series of five or six texts that were up one on birds and four or five on other topics like kangaroos or grasshoppers, etc. But what they did was they implanted into each series of texts the same 10 tier two words. Um, and they measured which group learned more of the tier two words, the group that read a series of texts on the same topic or the group that moved from topic to topic. And sure enough, the group that moved from that, that read a series of texts on the same topic learned more of the tier two words. Long before that, one of the smartest researchers I've ever met, a cognitive scientist named Tom Landauer, um, showed with an algorithm for how the human mind learns to read um, that reading a series of texts on a topic produces as much as four times as much word learning. Now that got poo-pooed by some people. They said, it's an algorithm, it's not real kids. Well, if you've been following the news, I think you know that algorithms work. Um, <laughs> and the entire history of the United States in the last 20 years might be different. Um, anyway, both, both studies showed the same result. Reading a series of texts on a topic. If you wanna go into people's experience, like people who have children, um, teachers and not, we know what kids read. I want to read everything I can about horses. I want to read everything I can about dinosaurs. I want to read everything dinosaurs. I can about dinosaurs yeah. over yeah. here. <laughs> it's even, it's even been called the dinosaur effect. Um, <laughs> oh, that's funny. And, and so they learn more, they learn more words. They're not just learning tier three words about dinosaurs. Um, they're learning all kinds of tier two words about, about the world. So there's a huge role for independent reading. We just can't count on independent reading to, to grow children's foundational skills who are far behind or behind in, in any significant way. Does that help with that? Because that's a big issue. Yeah, and yeah. I know that I'm... I don't know the study or if there is an actual study, but I know people say that, you know, students who are, you know, better readers tend to read more. But my, my thinking for that is not because... That they're, they're actually probably reading more because they're more confident readers, right? Because they have those foundational skills solid. And so therefore they feel right. good about reading, right? So just right. Like, reader, right. doesn't have for example, I'm, I'm, like, yeah, <laughs> if, if you're not good at something, you're not going to go out and do it all the time. Like I don't right. go out and like just shoot hoops because I know I'm going to miss most of them. Now, I, you know, like it's, I feel like it's the same idea. <laughs> It's exactly. I'm not very. I'm not very handy. Um, I, I don't think I learned to tie my shoes till I was 34. Um, so <laughs> I don't. I don't like fixing things because I fail at it all the time. Right. Um, yeah. I don't want to read if I'm a poor reader. So, so is that I'm wondering, Melissa? Oh I, yeah, absolutely. That, okay. So if students, you know, have difficulty reading, like during independent reading time, what? That I'm assuming, right? If I'm a teacher, I could pull and do some of those other activities with them. Would that be a time that I might be able to do that? If there is a, a time in my school, like if I'm a teacher listening and I have that time and I can't take it away, what, like what could we do instead? Okay, that's a good question. Um, 
And you you do a good job bringing things back to the practicalities, which is really important. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, you could pull the kids out and do other things, but then they might look around and say, well, you know, Jose is reading, Jose is reading about pirates and um, Alyssa is reading about horses or or flat and um, or Alyssa is reading about pirates and Jose is reading about flowers, whatever. Um, And I and I, you know, these games are fun, but I but I, I happen to be interested in rackets. So I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend that if it's truly independent reading. Here's what I would recommend. Independent reading has been interpreted by the field as independent reading of novels or independent reading of fiction. It absolutely does not have to be fiction and it does not have to be um, traditional text. It can be graphic novels. It can be comic books. Um, I would let them read whatever they want if you're having an independent reading time. I wouldn't do independent reading for too long because it is problematic, but yeah. I have a hard time getting up in front of teachers and say, don't, no, don't do independent reading. That That's just too hard to swallow. Um, the, the hell with the research. It's just, there should be a time. If a teacher feels that there should be a time when everybody can sit back and read whatever they want, then they should do that. Because if the teacher believes in it, the chances are the kids will believe in it. And it's a good thing. However, let them read whatever they want. Let them read comic books. Let them read um, graphic. Let them read graphic books. Let them read. Let them read magazines about motorcycles or amphibians or war or whatever they want. It does not have to be uh, a traditional full-length novel or anything like that. Um, and I've I've made that suggestion to hunt, especially in the years before I before I got drafted by David Coleman into the standards world when I was consulting in schools independently in urban and rural and suburban areas, which I was really lucky to do to have that range of experience. There's not one single teacher who didn't say afterward that that changed their entire independent reading period. They could read whatever they wanted. And you know what else? It's almost like the text set. It's almost like the Civetian right. The kid who's going to want to read about dinosaurs is only going to read about dinosaurs. The kid who's want, going to want to read about basketball is going to only read about basketball. That is right. going to expand their vocabulary, actually, significantly better than if they read novels. So not only is it better for, for reading profit, for development of reading proficiency, it's better for a nice 10 or 15 or 20 minutes of independent reading time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think too, like that's where I was thinking about that volume of reading and also what you just mentioned. Like we're not sitting around for 45 minutes reading. That would be, um, I would say too much, but that time frame that you just gave, you know, 10, 20 minutes of independent reading where kids can access, have access to anything, but also have access to like a volume of reading so that it can be supportive of what they are learning in tier one. So if they wanted to learn more, they could go get a book or something that helps them learn more about that specific topic. I, I feel like I love how you just um, you just articulated like just kind of opening the doors rather than closing or narrowing them, um, which I do think happens with leveled reading. You know, I feel like it's a very narrow place to, that kids live, and it's not fair to them. So I, I like the idea of opening it up and, and making it really accessible for every student in your class. Yep. Before we run out of time, we've said it many times, but do you want to talk a little bit about your course? Yes, I want to talk about two courses. The uh, the uh, course that is on Student Achievement Partners, um, that is IROS. 
improving reading for older students. It's a six hour course um, online. Uh, and I think SAP charges for it now, but it's not much at all. And it goes through everything. It goes through how, what do we do with foundational skills? What do we do, including fluency? How do we grow vocabulary? How do we grow background knowledge? How do we improve comprehension? So it's a six hour course geared exclusively to older students, meeting pretty much fourth grade and up. Um, and we've gotten very good feedback on it. There is certainly a need for it. The, about, it, it, I think it's close to 4,000 teachers have signed up for this six hour oh, course. Oh, that's amazing. No, I was going to say, David, we've already recommended it to people. People write to us all the time <laughs> and ask us what, they, what we recommend and we've recommended your course. And, and it covers a lot of what, it doesn't cover everything I've talked about today. It, 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 it covers, it covers a lot and there's a lot of reading in it. And, um, you know, I can't, I don't, I can't guarantee how many people have finished it, but the 4,000 or maybe more people to even sign up, that shows you there's a huge amount of interest in that topic. Now, the next course I want to talk about is, if that's okay. Yeah. Keep, keep, is yeah. the course that I'm developing now with student achievement partners called the Humanities Accelerator course. And there was an interesting, students who are very far behind have been, the, what we've done, the protocol we have in America has been interventions for like, I don't know, 40 years, 50 years. There's absolutely no evidence that these interventions have been sex successful going anything like scale in bringing kids to proficient reading at grade level. None, zero, zip. And the reason is, multiple reasons rather. One, that yes, they're behind in foundational skills and, and these courses often address those. But if they've been behind in foundational skills all these years, as we've discussed, and as you know, and as I'm sure many of your listeners know, they're also behind in vocabulary. They're also behind in knowledge. They're also behind in, in, in the comfort and knowledge and awareness of complex text. And they also don't have any confidence so if you don't address all of that, you are not going to bring students to proficient reading. It is impossible to address that in, at the high school level in a 47 to 53 minute intervention block. Absolutely impossible. And that's why the research shows there's no, no results. The other thing that confirmed this, um, student achievement partners did something very, well, I thought it was very smart because I never do anything like this. They took a survey of the, the thousands of people who, who've taken this course and they put things in different categories like confidence. What are the problems you see? Confidence of students, foundational skills, um, vocabulary, et cetera. But they also included time. And by far the greatest, and they asked teachers to rank it. And by far, number one was time. The teachers know the truth, yeah. even if the rest of the educational world is lost in some kind of dismal fog. There's <laughs> no way we're going to help these students without giving them the time that they need. The Humanities Accelerator course is designed as a three-period class. It integrates social studies and ELA so that you have time to build in what we know about helping these students into both areas. And it involves professional development in both air in, in how to do this. And then it's got a third period. And the third period is key. It involves 
personalized personalization based on the topic. So let's say the topic is immigration that they've been studying and they've been reading texts on immigration. In that third period, each student chooses an area of immigration they want to pursue. Mexican immigration, the, the legal the his, legality of immigration, the history of immigration, Japanese immigration, whatever they want. And in that period, with those texts that they do, the students who need more foundational work get that built in even stronger in ways similar to what we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. So they have a chance to choose what they want connected to the core topic. Not only that, they have a chance to choose how they present their information. It does not have to be a standard research report on, on, on Mexican immigration or on Central American immigration. It could, be, it could be a research report, but it could also be a Vimeo, a video. It could be a debate. It could be a dialogue. It could be any number of ways to present a skit, a play, any number of ways to present that information. So it explodes the idea of personalization. It explodes the idea of support built in to tier one text. And everybody is together. You walk into the room. You don't know who's reading at an 11th grade. It's a ninth grade course. You don't know who's reading at an 11th grade level. You don't know who's reading at a third grade level. Everybody's in it together. And that's the only way we see of building these kids' confidence and SEL. And the course begins with a three-week module called the launch module using the guide to reading that I discussed so that every kid begins the class learning about the psychology of reading and how the that. reason if they're struggling, this is why they're struggling. And we've got the graphic guide. Denver is piloting this next year in the ninth grade and the sixth grade. Um, in the ninth grade, we had, they had no high school curriculum. So we're working to find the right one. Um, in the sixth grade, they're using EL. But, and we are going to work with pilot schools at both grade levels to develop, develop the Humanities Accelerator course. Washington, D.C. is thinking about it. And I'm working with someone there. Um, they're looking at it for 23, not 22, which I think is smart because this is not an easy thing to develop. And I'm hoping to go after a district very close to both of you very soon. Um, and I'll be very pissed off if they don't respond. Um, oh, I hope it's Presley <laughs> school district. I'm going to just be selfish in that. I'll give you my address and you can let me know. Okay. I'm going to get... I'm going to guess you might uh, talk to Mark Etienne about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so that's, that's the humanities accelerator course. It, it's really hard to get high schools to make a major change in their structure. Uh, I, I compare it to going to the Vatican and asking them to consider a more bottom up approach. Um, so it's just so hard for high schools to change, but there's, there's no way there's no way we're going to help students without doing something like this. Yeah. Uh, well, we appreciate your, uh, your radical understanding for need or your need for radical, your need to understand the radical change that needs to happen. I will get that out one way or another. I was going to say that before either one of you were born, I was a student radical. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, well, I feel I like know, we always uh, ask our guests to leave a piece of advice, but I feel like we should leave a piece of advice. I think we should say, take David Lieben's course. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and, and convince your school to do humanities accelerator course. 
or to at least contact David Lieben about looking into it. Yeah. And Meredith worked on this too with you. We want to make sure we uh, give her some, some credit. Meredith absolutely worked on it originally uh, and also Sue, Sue Pimentel. Right now it's me and a team from SAP. Okay. Awesome. And I'll add in there too. You, you mentioned it before, but your book really is so helpful. Um, Say the name of the book. I'm. It's blank. It's blank. No, no better. No better. No better. Do better. That's. Well, I thought you were talking about the graphic novel. The book is amazing. The graphic novel is amazing. I haven't read reading it. Well, but the book really is so helpful. It has really specific things that you know. If you have older students, that we the way we described, very specific things people can try. And I mean, you have like the steps written out. Yeah. resources they can very easy to. to understand too easy to yeah, understand it's like yeah not a, oh, not a tough read <laughs> we're so um, very helpful we're going to start working in january meredith and i on um the comprehension version of that book in other words oh, to, nice. to pick up where foundational skills leads off left off mm-hmm. and we're hoping although we'll inevitably have a chapter in the very beginning but on foundational skills, but we're hoping to, to have that same combination of um, practicality and, and clarity um, based based on research. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It, it, it it's a little oh, yeah. harder with comprehension. You know, you got to grasp, you got to bring everything together. Um, right. And and that but but it's important to do that. And I'm looking forward to it. And we just got, we have to find a publisher. The publisher for Know Better, Do Better actually reached out to us. And people say that's very easy. So they say the hardest thing is finding a publisher. Well, the publisher found us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Lucky you. Okay. Thank you well, so thank much. Thank you so much, David. It's always a pleasure talking with you. And oh, good. We appreciate can't get enough time. of you. I enjoy, I enjoy working with the two of you. And if you need, you know, if if you fail to find anything that I talked about, email me and I'll figure out some way to have Meredith find it. Um, (laughs) Excellent. We will. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great night, David. Bye. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening, Literacy Lovers. Be sure to visit our website to subscribe to our newsletter and podcast. It's literacypodcast.com. Yep. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Most of them are at Literacy Podcast. Yes. And please, please, please reach out to us. Melissa, what's our email address? Melissa and Lori at literacypodcast.com is our email address. We're so glad you're here to learn with us. Thank you, everybody.